0: Field to table and flame to fork. The pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of a campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. rolling in with episode seven of the campfire conversations we formally released it a couple of weeks ago and holy crap the the listenership and uh downloads were were through the roof and we actually made t- top 20 like two days after release that was surprising but that that's huge huge engagement and uh just just thank you to everybody that tuned in, hit that follow button, hit the subscribe button, and wow, this, I'm stoked for this episode. Yeah, Absolutely this, stoked.
1: Yeah, this was an interesting interesting episode. Uh, um, Carlos was fantastic to talk to. Um, I know we did have a few technical difficulties, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to use your magic to make things as seamless as possible there, but very, <laughs> very enjoyable. Um, you know, this is somebody who, uh, you know, people listen to the podcast will... Appreciate the fact she went from being a, a vegan activist to eventually uh, eating meat and then getting into hunting, and uh, mm. you know, it, you know, quite a transition. And uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, just how dramatic that would be for somebody because your whole life is built around that identity for so long, and and it would be like you know one of us who hunts becoming mm-hmm. vegan, and you know, fine if that's the choice you make, but really, your I mean, your circle of friends would probably change your you know, the way you spend your time, even maybe where you live, like there's so many things would have to change. Like that's not a, that's not a trivial transition. No,
0: definitely not. Especially for, for somebody that was so entrenched the way she was. She, she talks about how she grew up in, in California and got into veganism and vegetarianism at the age of 12. And then morphed from there to, Actually, having her own uh, nonprofit organization, animal rights, and then making that that polar shift in her mid twenties to to uh, being a meat eater, and it was—I've known her a couple of years on uh, on Facebook, and we've chatted a, a ton of times, and I when we rolled out this podcast, she was one of the first people I wanted to talk to and we finally made it work and what a fascinating story. And I think, uh, I think everybody's going to absolutely love this
1: episode. Yeah, no, it it was interesting. And, and, you know, there's just so much more to talk about with her. I'd I'd love to have her on again. I I really want to get into, you know, the early years of, of transitioning out of, you know, being a vegan activist to, you know, Working on farms, butchering animals, eating meat—that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Just because, I mean, just the psychology of that. That's that's a, such a fascinating thing to consider. Um, and and she's been brave enough to to go out and, and talk about it. And you know, in in you know the modern climate of of social media and and all that. I mean, that's that that's a that takes quite a bit of bravery to go out and and, and talk about those sorts of things because you know you're going to get a lot of pushback.
0: Oh, definitely. She threw herself right out there and she went and did a TED talk about it. And uh, she she openly says that she doesn't pay attention to the numbers on there. And I told her tonight, after we stopped recording, that they'd had 15,000 views of it. And there's like 800 comments. And it floored her. Because last time she checked, there was only like 100 comments, she said. So people are still engaging. And she did that TED talk three years ago. And it's it's a as I said, it's a great evolution, a great story of how she basically went uh, to chickens and eggs, right, and to uh, to somebody who uh, is now a taxidermist and a hunter.
1: Yeah, but I also think, and we've mentioned this before on other podcasts. You know, I think the the line between you know veganism or vegetarianism and hunting is actually pretty thin. Uh, you know, I think. Mm-hmm. most people not all i mean there's the same diversity of people in any group that you find anywhere in the world but i think most people that hunt the the ethics of the food they're eating plays a role in the decision to be a hunter and uh you know i think that like she she said and they'll get to the podcast that even when she was a a vegan activist the one the one thing she could sort of understand was was if you're going to eat meat and you hunted it would that's, that sort of made sense, to mm-hmm. and uh, I, and I can see that. And I've you know I've talked to other people that are vegetarian. I don't know if they were vegan about hunting, and that sort of seems to be something that I've I've heard a few times.
0: Oh yeah, very very similar. Uh, as I get into in in this podcast, and I've gotten into another podcasts. Right, we want the same thing. We want to see sustainable uh, habitat. We want to see animals in perpetuity. We want to see the best uh, best. Dead. Death for uh, any animals that we're going to consume, right? We're the only difference is, is we're we we veer at the end, right? Of of how those animals are are used, right? And yeah, we're very very similar. A lot of people might uh, disagree, but I uh, I don't I don't think we're we're that different, right? Uh, just there, there's no difference in the ethics system. There really isn't. And she that was one of the my favorite quotes of uh of hers it's uh you you don't have to change your ethics because of the food you eat so i yeah it's a great one so uh yeah that's let's let our listeners get to the episode so this is episode seven and uh enjoy the listen all right here we are with the campfire conversations once again uh I, I'm super excited for today's guest. Uh, we've known each other online for a couple of years now, and we finally get a chance to sit down with a, a conversation we've been wanting to have now that we've uh, got a podcast. So, Carla Brower, how are you doing, my friend?
2: I'm doing pretty good. How are you?
0: It's it's cold up here. I was telling JP before we started recording, it's like minus 25. It's It's crazy cold for this time of year.
2: Like today was freezing over here as well. It was a, uh, I think the high was like 39.
0: Oh, yeah. Wow. We so have different
2: what... ideas. What cold is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause yeah. where's home for you? You're, you're in Oregon, right?
2: In Oregon. Yeah. In the Willamette Valley. So I'm sure that there's a, there's a huge array of temperature uh, situations <laughs> in the state, but we are in a kind of temperate zone where we get, you know, snow, Mm -hmm. once or twice a year we get the occasional ice storm or whatever um but it's uh it's a pretty spoiled area as far as cold goes so when it gets down to like the 20s we're (laughs) like oh my gosh that's just a lot yeah
0: i I grew up in (laughs) vancouver so very similar sort of uh zone and i was watching the news today and they're saying oh it's it's extreme cold it's minus five it's minus seven i'm like what that's spring weather here so (laughs) I, I i certainly yeah. don't i See, don't I'm miss the human cold
2: though <laughs> yeah, I'm from yeah San i grew up in... and we had a lot of temperature you know in the winter was like 55 and you're like oh god gotta find that heavy sweater
1: mm-hmm. yep. yeah I grew up in, in northern alberta and the, the coldest I saw it one morning was minus 56 and Yikes. The starlings fell from the sky dead. <laughs> we had starlings all over all over our snow out by the barn. There was the starlings in the snow. they tried to fly, I guess, to find some place warm to go and they didn't get very far. Wow. That's uh... <laughs> Oh,
2: that's kind of sad, but I I sometimes I dislike starlings. That that's pretty sad. <laughs> but Mar- I mean,
1: they're not native to North America. They're no. a European bird. So, yeah. you know, they're just they didn't really evolve for minus fifty-six. No, it's but still, imagine freezing solid. I did anybody like, yeah. Did anything? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> oh,
2: like
0: Jesus. yeah. I, I think it was like minus sixty in Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back when the Tauntaun froze solid. <laughs> so oh yeah, minus fifty six is that's cold. That's getting that's getting Star
1: Wars level, isn't it? Yeah, that's cold.
0: Yeah, we've we've had minus forty five, minus fifty with the wind here, but. You don't go out. You can hear the house settling and cracking and popping. And it's like, no, I'm going to do the same thing
1: if I go outside. Well, I know back home when I was a kid, we had like (laughs) aspen trees on our property and it was past minus 40. You'd hear what sounded like gunshots. And it was aspen trees cracking because the water inside would freeze and expand and the wood would crack. And it was so loud.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We did a a hunt a couple of years ago, a buddy of mine and I, we drove north of town and we, we drove on one of the forest service roads. And it was just a winter wonderland. It was about minus 35, minus 40. And you could see that it had snowed the night before. So all the trees had started to come down. Like just, they were kind of casing the road. It was really pretty. And then you could hear crack, pop, bang. And you're like, what the hell? And we just stopped. And you could see trees falling in the bu- in the bush. Like back, we're like, no, we're going to stop, turn around. Because if we continue, we're going to get caught by one. I'm I'm positive. So yeah, that's too cold for me.
1: Yeah, that's too cold.
0: Yeah, it's good for the moose though, because it uh, it knocks the ticks off them. So, all right. Well, this, like I said, I wanted to chat with Carla for a couple of years now. So, we you're you, you're in Oregon, and uh, is that where you grew up?
2: No, no, I'm actually from um, San Francisco Bay Area in California.
0: Oh, okay. And, and how long have you been in Oregon? What made you come up there?
2: Um, I moved up here. Gosh, you know, time has moved really weird since i lived here. But I think it's been almost 10 years. Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I originally moved here to try to start a farm. Um, I was renting some farmland and trying to get business going. And it didn't work out so well. But I fell in love with the state and decided to stick around.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've never been to California, but uh, I imagine they're quite polar opposites from what I I, I see on Facebook just geographically and politically. So <laughs> because uh, California just had that big movement for uh, trying to ban the bear hunt or something. And I know you guys had something like that because you and I chatted with it, but it just it seems seems quite opposite.
2: The area that I'm from in, in California, the, the Bay Area in particular, like I was born and raised in San Francisco. Um, it's pretty uh, not hunting friendly there. <laughs> I mean, I was an animal rights activist. I lived there. So for some perspective. um yeah, it, it's a different area for sure. But California as a whole, I mean, people give, you know, there are small pockets of the area, the state that gives the whole place, you know, a bad name, especially mm-hmm. in the hunting industry. But California is a huge, diverse state. And there are lots of places in California that are great hunting opportunities oh, wow. and are really hunting friendly. And there are places that are LA and San Francisco. And we can't
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because those are the ones that, that they make the loudest noise. You see them on the news all the time, right? There's pe- People think of California, you've got, LA you got lost uh, you got San Francisco and that's about it right California seems like it's two cities but it's 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 huge it's huge and like I said never been there yet it I was actually I was supposed to go down to the sheep show in Reno in January but uh, with the COVID restrictions and all that I I didn't get a chance to and part of my my flight itinerary down there I was going to stop in San Francisco for a couple hours for a layover and I was going to cross it off and say i've been to california but uh i wouldn't have got out of the airport but (laughs) still so you you touched on something there that actually drew me to a conversation with you when i first we first started chatting on instagram is you said you're an animal rights activist let's dig into that a little bit because that's a conversation that you don't really expect to be having with where you're at now so Let's let's dig into that—the uh, whole animal rights thing. How did that come about?
2: Yeah, so I was pretty young. I was, I think, about twelve, and uh, my mom and I were wandering around San Francisco on Black Friday. I don't know if you guys have that over there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just the chaotic bananas. i mean, try not to swear. Um, it, it's well, let's just say it's a shit show. Okay, it why is. Why not? Um, In San Francisco in particular, in Union Square, where it's kind of like the big downtown area with all the fancy stores, um, and there was a group of animal rights activists out there protesting fur. So they had, I can't quite remember, but there was like lots of like bloody stuff. And I think pretty sure somebody was naked in a cage, as you do. Um, But they were out there protesting the stores in the area that were carrying fur stuff. And... I had never thought, you know, I think I, I kind of maybe knew that fur existed, but I never really thought about it very much. And I was a super animal lover. I mean, I'm still I'm a super animal lover. Um, and I, as I'm like learning and like listening and, and looking at the signs and stuff, realizing that people are out there, you know, intentionally harming animals for this thing. That's like, you know, pretty much a luxury item. And I was like, oh my God, that's terrible. Like, what can I do? And I actually emailed the nonprofit to see if I could volunteer. And that was kind of the beginning of it. Um, I started volunteering for that organization for a while. And then um, I got a part-time job, and then I got a full-time job, and then I was one of their program directors, and I started my own nonprofit. uh, And I was like pretty serious about uh, animal rights. And um, I was vegan for many, many years, which means you you don't eat any animal products, even if it's like dairy or eggs. and I didn't wear leather. It was, uh, you know, definitely not a diet, it was a lifestyle.
1: So when you were growing up, then you, did you eat meat up until that point kind of thing, or how did, how, like, how were you raised as far as diet and those considerations? Yeah, no, in
2: my household, uh, yeah, in my household, we ate, you know, nothing, out of the ordinary, like we ate lots of meat. And um, I remember the veal cutlets that were the uh, luxury item every once yep. in a great, great while. Little like flaccid pieces of white meat that I like, yep. even today, I'm like, what was that? Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah, it was like super, you know, hamburger helper. And like, you know, my mom, my mom is a much better cook now than she was when I was a kid. So I, I won't judge her. in retrospect, but it was a pretty standard American diet. And then um, I don't think anybody, I don't think I was doing anybody any favors in my family when I decided when I was like, so young to be vegetarian. It was like, I require special meals now. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But, you know, they made it work. And uh, my grandma was a primary person who cooked in our household. And she had kind of a, a rotating repertoire of, Various vegetarian entrees. And then when I went vegan and didn't have cheese or dairy and stuff, I was old enough to kind of take care of that on my own.
1: <laughs>
0: so your fa- your family was okay with the, with you turning vegetarian, I guess, for lack of a better term. And they kind of embraced it and supported it?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I gave them like a ton of choice, um, <laughs> but they were okay. They were like, it's a face. It will feel good over it. And I'm like, well, you know, it lasted until my 20s. So it was just a long phase.
0: Yeah. So you, you, you totally jumped in with both feet into, into the lifestyle and you, you see people on Facebook and they're like, oh, well, vegan, this vegan, that. And then you, you, you look at the pictures and some of them wearing leather jackets and they're riding Harley Davidson's and, you know, they got leather, leather seats. And uh, y- there's just so much vitriol that you, you see coming at, uh, hunters from vegans and and vice versa. There's there seems to be no middle ground. And you you went from one extreme to the other. Like, cause I know your background now, like just from chatting with you on, on Insta and doing some some uh some talking there. But you grew up eating meat, you went vegetarian, you went full on vegan. And then you said you created your own animal rights movement. Like uh, how, how did that happen? And, and how long did that last?
2: Yeah, it's hard to, to really nail the progression, but um, you know, I worked in animal rights uh, at an animal rights nonprofit full time. And while I was there, you know, you kind of suddenly all of your friends are vegan and you do vegan things on the weekends, you know, and you, you, do activism together, and you you know watch these documentaries, and you know you have a, your social network and your personal life and your work life kind of coalesce into this greater vegan lifestyle. Um, and you shop at the same places because, like, when I was when I was young and vegan, it was not as easy as it is for all the vegan kids now. Let me tell you, there was like one restaurant in the city, and I was living in San Francisco. Like, this is like the most open-minded liberal area in the world and it was like a challenge to find soy milk or you couldn't get like a coffee with like oat milk nobody knew what that was so it was hard work and we kind of like banded together in like little bubbles of veganism um and so you live you end up kind of just like living in this echo chamber and once you become that enmeshed in you know uh it's an idea, but then it becomes a lifestyle, and it becomes part of who you are, it becomes really difficult to think critically about it. And I think that's, uh, yeah, you kind of, you you kind of just start, you're not thinking about it anymore, you're just kind of going with it. And um, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to hear and stay open minded to people who are Thinking differently, or maybe have critical questions, or maybe you just think like I did when I was so young and knew everything. Um, maybe you just think you know everything already, and that you have all the answers, and that your lifestyle is the perfect one for everybody.
1: <laughs> so, so when you're at that stage, I mean, you're at that point, you're pretty much residing in an echo chamber, like many of us do. You know, we we surround ourselves with people that share the same values and you know have the same interests. What did you ever have? Any thought at all about hunting? What did you think of hunters? Was it something that was just completely uh, abhorrent to you? Or what, what were your feelings about hunting?
2: You know, I would say on the scale of ways that people could eat meat that I would respect, hunting was up there already, even when I was at my, like, most extreme vegan. Um, I, yeah, you know, one of the things that I would always tell people is, and these are, this is, bear in mind, this is San Francisco. People are not, you know, hands-on with their food there for the most part. Um, but when I would be talking to people about veganism, they're like, I don't know, I just really enjoy meat. And I'm like, hey, if you can go out there and slaughter and butcher that animal with your bare hands, then I support you eating it. And most of them were like, oh my God, like, oh, I couldn't, I, ugh. And <laughs> 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 but, you know, I, I, I was not lying. You know, I think that even then, I was like, "Well, I don't want to hunt, but I think that if you're going to eat meat, that is going to be the way that is, you know, the the most humane and the most responsible way to do it."
0: Hmm. Yeah, and which leads us perfectly into one well, of the first things I saw about you was your TED talk. Like, you, you hear about TED talks, and everybody seems to to, to know them, but yours, I, I've watched. I can count on one hand how many I've watched and I've watched years. I've shown yours to, to literally dozens of people because it resonates on such a deep level on, on uh, hunting and just looking at the world holistically. So that's when you started to evolve from veganism and animal rights to being a meat eater. So how did you... Decide that you wanted to do a TED Talk. How did how did that look?
2: Yeah, it was well. Thank you, first of all, for sharing it because it's always nice to know that I wasn't just talking to myself when I did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I didn't exactly decide. I was approached about it. Um, I by some of the people who organized the local um, TED Talk because I knew what I did for a living, and they said you should you know apply for a talk. And I was like, well, I don't know what I would possibly talk about and but I do some I you know we can get into it later I do something pretty unique and interesting for a living so they were kind of like that could be it and I was like okay let me think about it and then I came in with a completely different talk like it was nothing to do with my work (laughs) and I was like what do I want to say to like like nobody cares what I do for a living like I'm not out there trying to self-promote myself I'm the worst person at like promoting my own business
1: sorry to interrupt Cardi but what were you doing for a living at that point
2: uh I, I the same thing I'm doing now where I'm I'm doing uh I have a bit of tech, a specialty taxidermy business that I specialize <laughs> oh, okay. in okay. I see okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um but yeah, I I was like, what do I want to communicate to people who are probably not hunters, um, probably maybe don't have like I I was trying to like envision like what is a TED audience like? Um And I just imagine, you know, they're probably like educated middle upper class people probably don't have a strong connection to the outdoors, Uh, maybe, you know, have some not so great thoughts about who hunters are, if they've ever thought about it at all. And so I just wanted to communicate, you know, in, in my own way, why I like to hunt and how it's kind of changed my perspective on the world and why it is totally normal and natural to do so, even though I think we're very disconnected from that part of mm-hmm. ourselves now. Um, and hope that not so much, I, you know, I wasn't going up there being like, I want you guys all to go out and hunt now. No. But just, you know, respect people who want a little bit more, or maybe just be open-minded to the idea of doing it one day or just thinking better of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what... How, how did you get, sorry, sorry, Steve. I'm just curious, how did you get from, you know, uh, animal rights activist vegan to you know getting into taxidermy and hunting like what what were the events in your life that made that transition happen the vegan eggs
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cross-reference my TED talk um I did. yeah so I I was in um college and it kind of uh you know I was like I had like a vegan animal rights club in college and I was in the middle of being, um, I had a grand jury subpoena on me because, which is for the people who don't live in the United States, not good. And, um, so, so some legal action was taken against me for breaking into a farm and taking some video footage and rescuing some ducks. And, um, I was also doing some journalism because I was interested in media and that kind of thing. And I did a story uh, that, you know, kind of some friends in the animal rights world hooked me up with this lady who had rescued a bunch of factory farmed egg-laying hens. So egg-laying hens are also known as battery hens and they, um, you know, they live on pretty ginormous farms and they're packed into pretty small cages and their eggs kind of just fall out and roll on a conveyor. And it's not a great life, you know, they're, they're not happy birds. Um, so this lady rescued a bunch of them out of a factory farm and had them kind of just living in her backyard. And so we, I interviewed her and we talked and um she just has this huge banner that's like vegan eggs. And I'm like, wait, what? And so I go up and chat with her and she was like, well, I'm drowning in veterinary bills and these chickens ain't feeding themselves. So Mm -hmm. she was selling their eggs. And I think the reason she was labeling it that, even though there's no such thing as a vegan egg, was basically because she was trying to get the attention of people who would be sympathetic to the fact that these weren't just any eggs, but they were coming from rescued, rehabilitated um, chickens from factory farms and I eventually bought one because, you know, walking by her every day and being, or every week and being like, oh, hi, yeah, I support you, but I'm not going to give you my money. Um, felt weird. So I just <laughs> finally bought like a, a $10 carton of egg or something. And I took these, this carton of eggs home and was like, what do I do with this? Like, I haven't eaten eggs in forever. And I feel weird about it because, you know, when you're vegan, it is extremely um, kind of a black and white situation. So you are vegan, you do not consume certain things, you don't have certain things in your home, you don't wear certain things. And so bringing these eggs home was like, It felt like I was like breaking the rules, even though when I really think about it, it's like, there's nothing unethical about it. You know, my ethics were I don't want animals being mistreated for a product that I could live without. And um, I didn't want to give my money to people who were causing harm. And in this case, I was actually you know, the money I'd given her was actually going toward helping these birds become, you know, live their best life and uh, live, you know, a nice retirement and and going for their medical fees and stuff. And then, you know, the fact that they were going to come, you know, eggs are coming out whether you want them to or not. So it's not like she was like squeezing these birds and like forcing them to lay an egg. Um, and so I eventually ate one and I think that I scrambled it for like six hours or something and it was not great. Um, but it wasn't terrible. And I was like, well, I have a whole dozen of them. I'll figure out how to cook an egg finally. Now that I'm in my twenties.
0: <laughs> and you, you realized at that point that the minute that you, you put the, the cooked egg into your mouth, that you'd, you'd broken that code between veganism and uh, uh carnists, I think they call us, but it's, it, that, that'd, <laughs> that'd be, that'd be, a, yeah, that's one of the ones I've seen thrown at us. Uh it's, that that'd be a tough one to emotionally reconcile, I'd imagine, after living so many years one way, and then in the matter of seconds, all of a sudden you're you're over the fence. How did you how did you reconcile that?
2: It was tough. I mean, it was a thing I did kind of on my own. I didn't tell anybody about this at the time. I was like, oh my God, if my friends knew that I just ate an egg, like, holy shit. Um and I just knew it's kind of one of those things where like in my head, I was like, okay, I have rationalized this, I feel good about it. But like, I couldn't imagine having to like explain it to my friends who are, you know, hardcore vegans also, because I just knew they were gonna be like, well, you should take those eggs and like throw them in the trash or something. I don't know. It, it just, the fact that you're actually consuming an animal product is so taboo that it leaves very, there's just no room left for any kind of gray area. And the world is not so simple as this product is always good and this product is always bad. Um, There's a lot of room for different circumstances and different ways of doing things. Um, You know, would I have eaten an egg that came from a factory farm and, you know, gone to Safeway and bought one and felt good about it? No. But in this particular situation, I had a hard time finding anything wrong with it. Aside from just the fact that, like, it is egg. <laughs> like aside from its yeah. its identity as an egg, there was nothing unethical about it. And you know, my ethics were not tied into the identity of eggs. It was had nothing to do with the actual product or the the food item. It was about animal suffering. And in this case, I was like, well, the animals are the opposite of suffering.
1: Yeah, that that's that's the interesting thing too, because I think with let's say egg. Consumption. I I agree. We like my wife and I get eggs. All our eggs from a lady up the valley who has chickens that are basically free range, and you know we get eggs of all different colors, things like that. We we make those same choices. But if we didn't consume those eggs, those chickens wouldn't exist. And those chickens, in my estimation, actually have a pretty good life. I mean, they just eat and run around and do their things, what chickens do. And they're 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 not in caged little cages or anything, so they can behave like chickens would inherently behave. So in some sense, just to say, well, all eating of eggs should be forbidden also means that like all chickens, regardless of the situation under which they're raised, would cease to exist, right? And I could say the argument, yes, for for industrial scale factory egg production, yes, there's probably a good argument against it for sure. But the, yeah, just to have a carte blank like eggs are bad is definitely a, a black and white... View of a gray world.
2: Yeah, and that kind of thinking it leads to some really interesting um, ways of rationalizing it. You know, because as you were saying, the what you're, you know, well, if you didn't have the eggs, then you wouldn't need the chickens, and like the chickens would go away, and that's kind of sad. Which I agree, I love chickens; they're great. Um, but I know, you know, I have, had known and, and probably still know people who. Would argue that chickens should go extinct because if they didn't exist, they can't suffer, and mm-hmm. that all livestock should go away because we created those animals, you know, for genetic selection and for many, many times, many thousands of years as human beings to serve us in some way. And some people don't believe that those animals should exist. They think that only wildlife is, is an animal that, you know, has the right to be here. Um, I respectfully disagree. I really enjoy. Livestock, and I enjoy pets, and um, I think that you know over all these years that we've been coexisting with animals and and breeding them, and kind of you know uh, creating these these coexisting relationships with them. I think that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And you know there are there are situations where it becomes extreme, and if you're breeding an animal that has a terrible quality of life innately because of their biology, I feel like that is. Unfortunate, and that should be stopped. You know, no animal needs to be intentionally created in such a way where they can't enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've I have a tendency to really enjoy raising livestock that are quote you know heritage breeds that are a little bit um, on the endangered side. So we have, um, for example, we raise geese, and we have a breed called uh, Pilgrim geese. And they're just so cool, like they're uh, they have sex linked colors, so which means that, you know, if they're uh, male, they're born white. And if they're female, they're born gray. So you tell them apart right away, which is really nice when you're trying to decide who you're going to keep. Um, and they're really docile and they make great meat. And, you know, these are all the things that our ancestors put a lot of effort into creating. And unfortunately, One of the other side, you know, I can go on a long long time about how I still don't like factory farms, even if I'm not vegan. Um, But one of the unfortunate things that's happened in agriculture is we've lost a lot of genetic diversity among livestock. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they go with the best, you know, laying hen, you know, that can squeeze out. I don't know, 300 eggs a year, where maybe there are some that lay 180 eggs a year, but they also have really good quality meat, so you can use them as a dual purpose breed. Um, and you know, genetic diversity in livestock also means uh, you're a little bit more, more insulated to disease, because if you have factory farms full of thousands and thousands of animals living in close proximity to each other that are all so genetically related. They don't have a lot of variation one disease comes in and your whole food chain can collapse and that's not good for anyone
0: Mm -mm. so i i imagine uh when you you took that plunge and ate the egg you you had to essentially change your social circle uh how did that talk like you breaking the hey i'm not vegan anymore we probably don't want to hang out how did that conversation look and and uh, how did they <laughs> how did they take it i'm just curious on the outside
2: well you know i kind of did <laughs> the equivalent of like backing away slowly um i you know i kind of kept my eggs a little bit of a secret but i just sort of you know let myself not go to like i used to literally do a protest every weekend and I just kind of let myself slack off. You know, I let myself be like, you know what? I'm not going to do it every weekend. I'll do it once a month. And then maybe I won't do it at all. And, you know, I'll just kind of back away from, you know, make some other friends. And um, there are definitely people who probably don't ever want to speak to me again, who I used to be close with. But I have, you know, some people who I knew in my vegan days are still friends. And I feel like you that's how you know they actually like you for you mm-hmm. versus like you for, you know, the fact yep. that you're vegan, I guess. Um, And, you know, I feel like if you are reliant on a social circle that does not give you room to explore who you are and change your opinions about things, then you are just in the wrong social circle.
0: Completely agree. Uh, Speaking of the TED Talk, do you you ever read the comments on the YouTube?
2: (laughs) Um, Not for many, many moons because (laughs) holy shit, where there's a dumpster fire. Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah. I'm looking at some (laughs) of them now. I'm like... She should write a children's book. I'm thinking along the lines of that night I gutted Bambi and cleaned his skull would be appropriate. <laughs> like I said, there's, there's extreme. You know, The world needs science.
2: more Hunter children's books. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I did, I think I'm trying to, I can't remember. I think my, my Ted talk is like 10 minutes long. It's not a long talk. You know, people have limited attention spans. They know that. Yeah. Um. But it like it and it wasn't getting very much attention honestly. It was just kind of they put it up online and let things happen. Um but then one morning I woke up and I had like a million messages and like Instagram and Facebook and like people I, I used to have like public profiles and stuff. And I had like DMs of death threats and people telling me yep. I'm a terrible person. I was like what the hell is going on? Um and I was like, I, I everybody, like, so all the vegans were after me. And I was like, what the hell is happening? And so I go, I was like, this has to be the TED Talk related. Like, somebody's found it. And I go and look at it, and there's, like, there were, it went from, like, five comments that were all, like, like, oh, this is great, thank you, to, like, a hundred that were telling me that I should go die. And I couldn't figure out what was happening. And I finally, mm-hmm. like, read through the comments enough to realize that somebody, like, this vegan YouTube dude had created a reaction video to my oh, TED Talk. I haven't seen that. And remember, no, don't, it's, yeah, don't do it. Um, my TED Talk, my TED Talk is 10 minutes. Yeah. His reaction video was 45 minutes.
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> like,
2: it was pretty, it was really embarrassing for him. But, um, you know, he sent all of his, you know, vegan crazy people over to attack me. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just going private and blocking everybody. I'm not going to engage. Like I'm always happy to, you know, debate somebody or talk about something when they come in with an open mind. I think, you know, hunters, especially being, you know, such a minority in this country, really, you know, we owe it to future hunters to have, you know, engage in conversations with people who are curious but maybe not supportive yet. And you know, have respectful conversations about what we do and why. But if somebody comes in the comments, they're like, you're a monster and you should be dead. And well, mm-hmm. there's no point.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I think quite a few people that actually have a high public profile make a rule of never reading comments or getting on Twitter and reading comments, things like that, just because it's not good for your mental health to, no. you know, to see dozens and dozens of comments basically saying that you're human trash, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been called a murderer before, yep. you know, being a hunter to my face. And uh, you know, I, I always find it quite ironic because, you know, like you, Carla. I mean, I've I've thought a lot about my food, my place in the world, my relationship with the earth, and you know, hunting and foraging has made a lot of sense to me. And I grew up on a farm, and we raised cattle. We had chickens. We had sheep for a while. We also grew uh, grew cereal crops, and you know, the the production of cereal crops and the other vegetable matter that we, we grew definitely killed more animals than our animal husbandry did. You know, we you know not only are displacing wildlife, but the number of mice and small birds and reptiles and snakes, you know, those types of things that die in the in the harvesting crops, like it's it's not a trivial number. It's billions of animals. And so if you have a if you're if you're gonna eat, you're gonna have an impact. And I do think it it's very hypocritical for somebody to judge somebody else who's trying to make the best possible decisions for themselves, especially if what they're eating is sustainable and they're not, you know, endangering a species or being unduly cruel or unethical. And I mean, that's of course a bit subjective, but yeah, it's kind of, you can, you can really go down the rabbit hole of this, but I do find that my patience for people that just have a militant attitude toward other people's dietary choices is, is pretty thin because it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, trying to remove the speck from your eye where they've got a plank in their own, you know, just.
0: No, that's the optometrist. You know, that talk. Biblical, that's the uh, optometrist and you talking. Right. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I find that. no matter. But anyway, yeah, I feel for yeah. you because it's yeah. Yeah. Whatever side of the fence you're on, right. If, if you're a meat eater, or you're a vegan, you're a vegetarian, if you're extreme and you're trying to push your, your, your views and your life choice onto somebody else. that That's wrong, right? It, I, I think you said something along the lines in the TED Talk of you can change your diet without changing your ethics. And that's what it ultimately mm-hmm. is about, right? And from that, I, I want to talk about your progression into hunting. How did that choice show up? Because we, we talk about the ethics and how you like to utilize the animal. So that, that, that natural progression, how did that... How did that uh, come out for you?
2: It was something that I was really curious about because, you know, on on the grand scheme of things, I feel like there is very, it's very hard to find a way to harvest an animal for food that is more sustainable and ethical than hunting, um, assuming you are being, you know, an ethical hunter. And, you know, I had been, um, I, I kind of, dove headfirst into learning about farm farm life. And I worked on some ranches and, and farms and had kind of done my time um, slaughtering animals and butchering them um, for livestock. But the going out into the wilderness and killing an animal was still a huge mystery. And I don't, you know, I didn't come from a family of hunters. I didn't have friends who hunted. I kind of knew people who like who had hunted and um, were like, yeah, it's great but it's hard when you are you know like i was in my 30s and um curious about it and really wanted to try but it's like where do you even begin so i just like started you know a little bit at a time i acquired a rifle i eventually learned how it worked Um, (laughs) i did a bunch of reading about you know what you know out here um the primary Game species that I was going after was blacktail, so I read about you know their habits and where they live and what their lives are like, and um, eventually I got brave enough to to go out and give it a try, and I was also lucky enough to meet some people who were willing to give me a hand, and because um, I, I did go out on a hunting season by myself and it was not successful. Um, you know, if you count bird watching and like wildlife viewing as part of hunting, then it was like wildly successful. But as far as bringing any animals home, not great. <laughs> um, but the next year, um, a client of mine who, I, cause I had already, I was already cleaning, you know, bones for hunters before I hunted myself, offered to take me out and he helped me get my first buck. And, um, it was kind of like, well, all right, now it kind of makes sense and I could do it again. And so it's been a couple of years and I've been, you know, on the whole, I'd say I feel pretty successful because we have a venison, you know, venison filled freezer and, um, I've had some really good times in the woods exploring how that works.
0: Yeah. I remember you and I were chatted last fall and you, we were talking about our, our upcoming hunting trips and yeah, it's, it's it's crazy to think no matter where you are in the world, how far apart you live, the the similarities one can have and the differences, right? And that's, that's what I'm really finding with one campfire and the, the people we're, we're talking to and getting a chance to know. So one thing, I want to backpedal just a little bit. you I don't know when when you met your wife. Were you vegan when you met her?
2: No. No, by the time I met my wife, I was living in a farm way the hell out there in the middle of nowhere with like... Freezer is full of dead shit. Like it's a miracle that (laughs) I ever met anyone, honestly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I just I was just wondering if she was vegan and Mm. how that looked. But no, if if she if you'd you'd met her after that, that transition had already happened because that'd be an interesting conversation that I'd love to get into as well. So
2: well, I did for a long time after I was already working on farms and I hadn't been hunting yet, but Um, I did have a series of a long relationship with somebody who was vegan the whole time and, you know, we made it work. It was, you know, she was vegan for a multitude of reasons. And, you know, by the time we met, I was, um, I had just come back from living and working on farms in the Southwest and, um, we kind of hit it off and lived together and ate together many times and we just kind of made it work. Uh, there were times where I had, you know, a freshly butchered goat quarter in the refrigerator, and you know, made tofu for dinner. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> can can you come you move just, this chunk of meat? <laughs> Yeah. Like I, I, like I always tell people like, I have nothing against vegans. Like I feel no. like we have a lot in common because Absolutely we, we are conscious about the ethics of our diet
1: mm-hmm. and
2: we might do it in different ways, That's right. but we, at the end, you know, we give a shit about animals. That's all that That's matters. Right. That's
0: right. <laughs> yeah. We, 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 I've said that many times to people, they're veganism and hunters. There's, we're 99% the same. The only place we differ is in the use of animals, right? We want to see the same thing. We want to see sustainability. We want to see wildlife populations increasing. We want to see things in perpetuity. We want to see good habitat, animal husbandry, everything. Like the only difference is right at that end. So I I really don't think we are that different than vegans. So uh, that's just, I, I think it's a neat conversation, to, to have, if you can sit down with somebody that is a complete polar opposite of who you are, you can find a lot of similarities and I I think that's, was, was part of your transition.
1: Yeah. That seems to be the case for a lot of people that, especially adult onset hunters that are from hunting families is the uh, you know, the, when they start to have those crises about their, the, the ethics of the food they eat. You know, oftentimes that leads them to hunting and yeah, I just think that if you're going to eat meat, it is, it is probably the most ethical way to do it as long as conservation is not a concern. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: I I agree.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: So you, you touched on you clean bones for a living. I know what you do. So how the hell did that happen? (laughs) And let's talk about your career now.
2: Well, you know, when you live on farms for a couple of years, you end up with a bunch of separate heads and like, what do you do? <laughs> so I um, well, I was living on uh, and working on a goat meat ranch in Napa in California, and we had a bunch of old bucks that we were slaughtering for people. And, um, you know, we cut the heads off and like we normally would just like toss them in the compost, you know, toss them in the back 40, let some predators have them. Um, but they had really nice horns. And I was like, well, you know, their skulls would be super cool. So let me see what I can do. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I'm pretty sure at that point in history, if you like Googled how to clean bones, you would be like totally like the Google would just be like, wait, what? Are you <laughs> <Yeah>. okay? Uh, <laughs> now, you know, there's a plethora of information, but this was a different time. And I um, I took the heads and I didn't even, I don't think I even skinned them, honestly. I think I just like put them out and like built this little cage around them so that like vultures could come in and like ants could come in, but like nothing could drag them away. And it was, it, you know, not great as far as success goes. It kind of like mummified before anything good happened and um, just gross. Uh, but I continued to work on farms and ended up with a lot of heads to play with. And eventually I got decent at cleaning them. And then I was like, okay, there are these like beetles that forensic pathologists use and like museums and stuff have them and they're called germested beetles. And it's like their specialty. They're like a, a you know, kind of cleanup species, like a, a scavenger that eats, rotting flesh. And how handy, right? (laughs) So I was like, I would like to get some of these beetles. I wonder where to get them from. And I start looking around online and I find a guy in Alaska who raises them. And I was like, hey, ship me some beetles. And I get this like little margarine container of beetles in the mail from Alaska. And I've had the same beetles literally ever since. Um, You know, it's been a long time now that I've continued their little genetic legacy. And fed them many, many different types of critters over the years. Um, but it was kind of, it kind of became, it was a hobby. And then, you know, as word travels, it became a busy hobby. And then uh, eventually, here I am. It's my full-time job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, how clean will these beetles get a skull? Do they basically get it so that there's no no muscle or tendons or anything on it?
2: Yeah, they get it super clean. Um, they because so the beetles are they're tiny. I know everybody's probably picturing like something out of like Egyptian, like like a Egyptian tomb, but they're tiny. They're like maybe a quarter of an inch long, and they're little black things. Like you would never know that they were these flesh eating beetles, honestly. And they're they don't bite living people, so I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> um, the beetles, however, do mostly one thing, which is make more beetles. But the larvae are the ones that do the cleanup. So when they are first hatched out of their little tiny eggs, they could fit on the head of a pin. They're super teeny tiny. They're like almost, you can't see them with the naked eye. And they go through multiple instars, which is just a, a way of saying they just get bigger and go through different life phases. Um, and then the biggest beetles uh, or the biggest larvae, they look like tiny fuzzy caterpillars. And it's kind of mm-hmm. funny because the, the biggest larval stage is actually quite significantly larger than the beetles themselves. Um, And then they pupate, they become beetles and they make more beetles. So they kind of have a good thing going and I, they're very well fed here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've had a couple of my skulls cleaned by beetles and yeah, you're right. They, they're these little kind of black with the brown stripe and the ones that I've seen, but the, the, uh, the the caterpillar is kind of fuzzy looking. They're, they're weird. And I, I know they're definitely something, if you got taxidermy or, or uh natural furs or anything in your house you don't want them in your house because they will eat it
2: yeah i have to take significant precautions which is kind of funny because i've lived you know i've been doing this for so long that when i first did it i lived on a farm and did it in my bedroom and then i rented a couple of places and done it like in rentals it's a miracle that this ever happened honestly like (laughs) because a landlord being like yes bring pest beetles into my house that sounds great um, they are a variety of carpet beetle, which is yeah. exactly what it sounds like. So yeah, you don't let them in your house. They will eat your books. They will eat your taxidermy mounts. They'll eat hides. Um, my life has become infinitely more complicated because now I also can hides and do taxidermy. So I have to be like <laughs> really good, you know, precautionary measures to keep the beetles in one place and like the furry thing somewhere else and like nobody mixes <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I, have you have you had an escape have you ever had any escape and have a concern about that
2: um, no i'm pretty careful there was a there was one instance where i wasn't paying super close attention and i would have these velvet antlers that i was keeping in the shop with beetles and then like weeks later, I looked at them and I was like, why do they look thinner than they? Oh, crap. So apparently they <laughs> eat antler velvet, too, which is kind of just another form of flesh. So oh yeah, got to look out. Yeah. yeah. Right. They just basically have they have their own house, basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. A, a big calling of them can can take a skull down in just a few days. It's it's crazy. I had a wolf skull done up here. Uh, by somebody that I, I found and it was just, well, how long do you need it for? Well, how much meat's on it? Well, it's skinned right down. And I I had it back within within a week. It was crazy how fast it happened.
2: Wow. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I don't do it that fast. <laughs> <laughs> I see a couple but, of skulls well, behind for you. The Beatles, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, there's a work in progress behind me. Um, the beetles do a really good job of cleaning the flesh off of the bones. Yes. So, you know, by the time they're done, like, tiny beetles get in tiny crevices they get yeah. all in the nasal turbinates which if you don't know what that mm-hmm. is look up yeah. a, a look up a skull snoot and there's like really cool like wiggly bones that are like paper thin in there and they're my favorite um yeah. and those are easily damaged so if you're doing stuff like boiling and pressure washing say goodbye and the beetles are great because they can do delicate stuff i do like a lot of birds and um you know like very young animals where the skulls haven't fused um But they clean flesh. They don't, you know, do anything else. So Mm -hmm. I still have a a fairly long process that the skulls go through after the beetles. So um, if you haven't cracked open any bones lately or made any bone broth lately, bones are full of stuff. Bones have (laughs) collagen and protein and grease and fats and oils and stuff you just don't want in your mouth. Uh, If you're hanging on the wall and it's like translucent and like looks like it could drip, then yeah. It's not degreased.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, <laughs>
2: so the degreasing process is, is gentle and it takes some time and then I whiten it and, and then it can go home.
0: <laughs> yeah. The first bear I ever got, I, I had somebody to uh, de- boil it and all that fun stuff and I got it back. And within six, eight months it turned yellow and, and it left spots on the, 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 the ground where I'd had it. I'm like, what's going on here? And then I did some research into it. I'm like, okay, this wasn't degreased. <laughs> so whenever I get my skulls done now, yeah. it's, this needs to be degreased. And it's, it's it definitely, as you say, it's, you notice it when it's not degreased properly. And that's a step that a lot of people don't understand. And that, that just circles right back to the, the full use of the animal. Right. And it, you're using everything, like right, true field to table you know where your food comes from right out of the field you're you're taking everything you're making the bone broth you're taking all the meat you're keeping the skull as uh, as a memory of a successful hunt so yeah it's 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 a cool process that an evolution that you've come through uh would would you do anything differently
2: Gosh, I mean, I tend to take really difficult roads to get to places where I'm at, and the, like in retrospect, I'm like, that could have been easier. But in the in, ultimately, no, I don't think I would because even the mistakes that I've made and the difficult things that I'm like, oh mm-hmm. crap, that could have been so much easier if I had just made my life simple. Um, that's how you learn, right? Like exactly. Even even really difficult adventures are totally worthwhile, and that's kind of one of the beauties of hunting too. Like. I know I, like, I love hunting, but like sometimes when I'm actually out in the moment in the field, I'm like, this, this fucking sucks. You're like, it's freezing. I'm tired. <laughs> yep. there, I haven't seen an animal in three days. I don't know what I'm doing here. Like there are stores full of meat, full of meat. And here mm-hmm. I am freezing my ass off on a mountainside, like wondering where the meat is. So, <laughs> sometimes I feel like a crazy person, but you get home and you warm up and you know you make that first you know backstrap and you're like, oh, okay. It was all worthwhile. And okay. you feel like a better person person and you learn some stuff from it yeah
0: after that hot shower you're like okay am i going out again tomorrow yeah what time right right
2: exactly
0: (laughs) i'm never doing this again then you come home you're like well wasn't that bad because i'm making plans again so so i know
2: i know i can't wait to get back out there (laughs) oh yeah
0: you got any plans coming up for the spring do you guys have a spring bear season down there
2: we do. Um, I didn't put in for it this year and I'm probably not going to get out much this year as far as hunting because we are due to have a baby boy in May. So yeah. kind of a priority a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, w- I was hoping you'd mention that. I didn't want to bring oh. it up. But I kind of hinted towards it.
2: <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's going to, it's going to be kind of a, you know, a, a not great fall hunt for me this year between trying (laughs) to keep the business going and have like a six month old but you know (laughs) it'll be worthwhile because i'm investing in my future hunting partner (laughs) that's
0: right yeah my daughter was out with me god she was three four months old sitting sitting in the car seat oh wow sleeping away but yeah it's it's now I've, i've got some crazy video of her she was probably three maybe three years old and we're out just out for a drive and She's in her full camouflage, sitting in her car seat in the back of the truck and she's got her binoculars and we stopped by a swamp. She goes, dad, stop, dad, stop. So I stop next to a swamp. She rolls down the window and then she starts trying to do a moose call
1: <laughs> like just <laughs> from, a, from a
0: running truck. It was but she absolutely loves it. She knows where her food comes from and she she hunts with me and and uh, her favorite food is bear. Like she'll tell she'll tell people. Hey, yeah, When you say, well, do you want pizza? Do you want lasagna? No, I want bear sausage. Like we're in a a town of 75, 80,000 here and everybody, I'd like to think everybody hunts. It's uh, so it's it's commonplace, but still we, we, we've we had uh, friends of uh, hers, like her, the parents just know oh, your dad hunts. Oh, but it, well, what does he hunt? Well, bear, bear. And we've... I've given bear sausage and ground bear to their the the parents and it's I'll I'll get a phone call a couple days later oh that was really good can how do we learn a little bit more about it so it, it always opens that conversation right and food is the one connection we all share no matter how we get it
2: I've I've been really wanting to go after bear because I have tasted it and oh my god it's so good and Good. we don't eat a lot, you know, we eat a lot of meat, but we don't eat a lot of beef because like we can't afford to have a cow and, you know, <laughs> we can't really afford to buy beef from a place that, you know, we would want to support. So we end up missing it. And bear is the most similar thing that I found. Um yeah. And, you know, I've been happy to have some generous friends share their harvest with me, but I haven't actually gone bear hunting yet because honestly I do most of my hunting by myself and bears are a little intimidating for me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They can be, they can be up where I am. Uh, God, it's, it's nothing to see 25, 30 bears in a, in a day in the spring. So it's, there's definitely no, no shortage of black bears up here. So
1: (laughs) got to get you up here one time for one. I think it'd be a blast.
2: No so, kidding. Yeah, yeah. I think British
1: <laughs> British Columbia is probably the epicenter of black bear hunting. I think it's got the most black bears of yeah. any jurisdiction in North America. Yeah. Estimates 10
0: years ago, the last time they did a rough count was, I think it was 160,000. So yeah, it's the most in North America here in BC. And like, we'll get them in my front yard. It's crazy. Like I've opened the door to go put the garbage in the carport and close it. And went, sorry, realize there's a bear out there without even thinking I'm apologizing to it because that's what Canadians <laughs> do. <laughs> Like, sorry, sir. Oh wait a minute, you're a bear. It's just it's
1: it's not yeah. so. Well, in our part of the Kootenays here, there's there's definitely more bear than there are elk and deer. Like you're you're way more likely to see a bear than a deer or an elk. So yeah, they're wow. they're plentiful. It actually makes like up here. It's a, it's a good species for a new hunter because the opportunities are so abundant. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Like, in the in the spring, you're you're going to see bears. It's just that simple. You're not you're never not going to see a bear. You might not get a chance to harvest it, but you're going to see one, at least one. I mean, probably multiple bears in the the day.
0: Oh, yeah. I I brought a a buddy of mine up. We actually went to kindergarten. I've told this story before to a bunch of people. We went to kindergarten together, and about five years ago, we reconnected on Facebook because that's what Facebook does. And I I posted a picture of a bear, and I got the inevitable message. He lives in Vancouver. I got the inevitable message. Did you eat that? Yeah, I did. And it was an open conversation. And uh, I said, Well, what's your address? So he gives me his address. And long story short, about three months later, he had his firearms license, he had his hunting license, and he was up here the following spring and took two, two, two great bears. And he's been up every year for the last three years and taken a couple of bears. And Last spring, he brought up his neighbor, early 50s, new hunter, and same sort of thing. Uh, They'd had a conversation about uh, bear hunting, and it was, well, I don't really know. And my buddy said, well, let me bring you over some food. And he loved it, and he got his hunting license. But his wife said, I don't want any of that in my house. Nope, don't like it. And she'd never tried it. So a few months later, my buddy brings over a big bowl of bear stew and just, just enough for one person. And about an hour later, this guy's wife knocks on the door with the bowl and he was expecting that he was going to wear it. And she goes, that was really good. Can you take him hunting so he can get a bear? <laughs> so it's a great yeah, evolution yeah, yeah. there. And yeah, it's, it's it just shows that 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 little that that, that shared bond that, that shared commonality to create a conversation does open the door for uh for 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 bigger conversations right and yeah like i said before no matter where you are in the world food unites you or food unites us right and we just got to have a, a two-way conversation and you need to you, you need to listen to understand somebody else's viewpoint instead of listening to respond somebody's viewpoint because there's a lot more bridges to be to be walked over than there is to to burn so
2: absolutely I it's blown my mind actually because I've talked to a lot of people who were like oh I don't mind hunting but not bear hunting and I'm like what what's Mm -hmm. wrong with bear hunting and they're like well nobody even eats them yeah and I'm like like people truly believe that nobody eats bear meat and I'm like it's so good have you not yeah. tried bear like we need everybody who shoots a bear just like bring your neighbors and friends <laughs> a sample because like there is a huge misperception out there that bears are disgusting That's and greasy right. and nobody eats them as a trophy hunt and that is far from the case
0: absolutely absolutely I've had uh, people say to me well you didn't eat that bear well then I'll post a picture of the bear in my freezer labeled says black bear ground or whatever and they'll say that's made up. You, you put that stamp on there. It's no, no, we, we don't go through that kind of effort.
1: Yeah. That's, that's funny that people would think that if, if you, if you read some of the journals of the early, you know, uh, explorers in North America, like non-indigenous explorers, I mean, bear was one of the top things on the menu for them just because of the fat content. Right. Um, you know, it's a lot of energy. It's, I mean, if if you had to choose between living on bear meat, living on deer meat or, or moose meat or elk meat, you'd, you'd be smart to choose bear because it's got so much fat. Absolutely. But Holy crap.
0: Just looking at the time here, we're having such a great conversation. We're rolling well over an hour here. So, (laughs) all right, well, let's wrap this. Let's yeah, let's, let's wrap this up. I knew we'd have a great conversation. So Carla, if those people that want to get a bear or a deer or whatever cleaned that don't have to worry about the yucky permitting process, like we Canadians would have to. So if somebody's living in Oregon or whatever, how do they find your website?
2: Um, so the business is called ram Nobody can say it. Nobody can spell it. Um, I'll spell it for you. It's dot com.
0: Excellent. I will put that in the show notes, because well i've got it open in front of me and i'm not going to try and repeat it so i truly truly appreciate
2: don't, don't hire me to name businesses for you <laughs>
0: <laughs> i truly truly appreciate your time my friend
1: and uh we'll chat soon yeah thank you cardin congratulations you on you. your uh your new baby that's coming up oh we'll have you thank back you on. so much
0: we'll have you back on after the, the first hunting yes. season with the baby That'll be a good follow-up.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Can't wait, man. Well, thank you so much. And you guys have a great rest of your night.
0: You too. Take care.